0: Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. You're listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Sally Hayden. Sally Hayden is an award-winning journalist and photographer currently focused on migration, conflict and humanitarian crises. She has worked with Vice, CNN International, the Financial Times magazine, Time, the Thomson Reuters Foundation, the BBC, the Washington Post, the Irish Times, the Guardian and the New York Times, among many others. Sally has reported from many countries across the globe, including Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, Sudan, Lebanon, Jordan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Panama, Cambodia, Liberia, Kenya, Uganda, Somalia, Niger and Sierra Leone. Her writing has been translated into nine languages and she has appeared as a TV and radio guest. Sally has a law degree from University College Dublin and an MSc in International Politics from Trinity College Dublin, where her thesis was on post-conflict societies and theories of civil war resolution. Her first book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, was published in 2022. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council on Corolla Allian. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.
1: My name is Sally Hayden, I'm a journalist and author from Dublin and I have been reporting on issues related to migration since 2014. Over the past 9 years I've investigated the way refugees and asylum seekers are treated across Europe. I've met smugglers and traffickers and I've travelled to some of the countries that people are escaping from, places like Syria, Iraq, Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, Sudan and Somalia. Along the way, I've met hundreds of incredibly brave people, doing what they have to, to survive. In my book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, I wrote that human consciousness is full of epic tales of travel. Today, we are witnessing heroism, bravery and sacrifice on as great a level as ever. I can't help but contrast those stories with the often negative public conversation around the rights of refugees and asylum seekers, and the constant barrage of political statements and headlines which can sometimes be racist or xenophobic. I've questioned why the public perception of what gets called Europe's migrant or refugee crisis hasn't shifted towards a broader understanding that this is really a crisis for the people on the move. And though I am a true believer in the importance of journalism, I've questioned myself whether through my reporting I've in any way added to the dehumanization of vulnerable people, making it easier for Western governments in particular to enact policies that shut them out and condemn them to suffering. Reducing people to statistics can feel dehumanizing, but the statistics are important. Since 2014, more than 25,800 people have drowned or gone missing in the Mediterranean Sea, trying to reach Europe. Hundreds of deaths are being recorded each year of people trying to cross from Mexico to the US, with more than 850 documented in the 12 months to October 2022. Globally, there are more than 27 million refugees, the vast majority living in developing countries where they have little security. There are more than 89 million people displaced in their origin countries, according to United Nations figures. Writing is an inherently lonely and isolating activity. For this podcast, I wanted to speak to other writers to get their thoughts on writing about refugee and migration-related issues. I wanted to ask them if they ever face ethical conundrums, questions around what language to use or what stories to tell in the first place. And I wanted to place our work today in some historical context. This podcast is going to present a series of conversations, and I've been blessed with a dream selection of participants, writers, and academics who write both fiction and non-fiction with varying perspectives on this topic. They are Suad Al-Dara, Sean Kalum, Gowali Paserlai, Hilan Habila, and Jane Grogan. Please bear with us as we shift between a few different levels of audio quality as that was a bit dependent on where the person I was speaking to was. And thank you so much for listening. So first I have Suad Aldara, the author of I Don't Want to Talk About Home, a memoir published in 2022. It covers a lot, including life in Saudi Arabia, life in Syria, migration, finding a new home in Ireland, spending time in the US. It's really exceptional. The writing is beautiful. The insights are fascinating. And I really respect Suad's work. With me I have Suad al Thank you. Thanks, Sally, for having me. Um, so I guess, uh, I may as well start straight away um, in that in saying that one of the questions I started this podcast thinking about is why more news stories focused on migration aren't told through the prism of heroism or love. And your book is in part a love story. Uh, why did you take that decision to write about your personal life? And did you have any reservations when it came to that?
2: I decided to write this book because I, I had so many stories building up inside me. And uh, I was, my way of coping with all the trauma that I went through was through denial. And at some stage that wasn't possible anymore. And uh, those stories were accumulating and they were, they were reaching a point where it was just too much to carry those stories with me. For me, writing was the only option that helped me process all of those things. And in terms of reservations, if I had any, so um, yeah, absolutely. So um, it. Was, like, there was a lot of sensitive content in the, in the book, whether it's related to my family privacy, whether to religion to politics. And um, I hope I, I handled that with care and uh, that I managed to write what matters and uh, without going into the complicated details or other people in my life, uh, personal details and focus on what matters. Maybe
1: uh, you have some thoughts on how Syrians are perceived in Ireland or other countries across Europe or North America. I mean, I don't know if that was a motivation when it came to writing the book, like, but but what is right about those perceptions and what is wrong?
2: There's definitely um, lots of misconceptions there and uh, several wrong ideas that I found myself facing every time I answered that question, where are you from? And as soon as I say Syria, I see all kinds of reactions. And uh, of course, the media, the way it portrays uh, the uh, Syrians there, that, uh, that affects how people um, deal with Syrians, because many of those people who I meet, they've never met Syrians before. And um, I think the most interesting uh, story that I have there that when I was um, riding a taxi and uh, that the, he never met a Syrian before, And as soon as he heard I'm from Syria, he said, like, Syrian are terrorists, don't you read the news? And that shocked me, that statement. He hasn't met anyone before, but that's what he hears on social media or in the news, actually, not only on social media. And uh, he kept saying all those kind of wrong stereotypes about how Syrians are terrorists or uh, like after the benefits. He also claimed that my house where he picked me up, that, that the government paid that for me. And like, I tried to explain that how I pay taxes, everything, like I tried to correct his misconception, but he didn't want to listen. And uh, yeah, the book is kind of a way uh, to change this narrative that kept following me everywhere.
1: When you shared news of the book deal and the book's publication, I noted that you said, or you wrote online anyway, I am no longer underrepresented. Did you feel like you had been up to that point? And did you mean as a Syrian or as something else? Uh,
2: Yeah, absolutely. I always felt underrepresented. And uh, as a Syrian, as a woman in tech, as an Arab, uh, like on many levels, I was underrepresented. Uh, and the few stories that are out there um, about Syrian uh, migrants or refugees, they are um, very different than the story that I wrote. And uh, although like, they helped me a lot, process lots of things, and we had some similar aspects of it, but I'd, I couldn't find my story. And it's probably a cliche to say that I wrote the book that I didn't uh, find. And But that's, that's how I felt. The, the moment I published the book, I felt... I'm no longer underrepresented in English literature.
1: And when you write, do you think about who your audience is? Like, is it other Syrians or Irish people or everyone or, you know, did you have any concept in your head of who you
2: were trying to explain things to? Uh, All of those, I guess. And it was tricky when I was writing like the marketing plan when we were uh, doing the book proposal, who is the main audience. And they are all of those people. They are the Syrians who are confused about home. They are the migrants. They are the irish or the hosting societies for uh, migrants and refugees and i keep getting messages from people from different backgrounds different religions and they all could connect with the book which is amazing
1: you're a computer scientist and i've worked a lot with data including data gleaned from social media and you've seen the masses of information that's available on facebook for example where exiled communities come together to talk and share accounts of what they're going through Do you think that what you see there tells a different story than what is reflected in the European public's understanding of migration?
2: Uh, Yes, I do think so. I I, I just don't think that many Europeans understand that there are no legal and safe ways for Syrians to to travel. And that's the message I keep repeating everywhere when people um, argue against the inhuman boat trips, that. There are no legal ways, and it's either die in the war or go over the sea. You can't just go to the airport and book a trip and fly safely to a safe place. And that frustrates me that it should be as simple as just allow humans to go on an airplane instead of letting them go through the sea and through this horrible um, trip. And yeah, that's that's a story I feel it's not clear yet. Like they keep that. referring the, to them as illegal migrants, and that's the thing. Like there is no legal way.
1: For your masters, you use data analytics techniques to analyze news around refugees in the hopes of highlighting xenophobia in the news.
2: What did you find? So for this project, I um, I worked on I worked using um, far right uh, data from British newspaper. And I had to go manually through uh, headlines to label it as xenophobic or not based on several criteria. And it was a very painful process, but I, like, I, the goal was to be able to train a machine to be able to automate this and give a score on an article, whether it's xenophobic or not. Those articles just make it worse, uh, they um, increase this gap between the uh, the public and the migrants and they make integration harder, they make uh, the two communities just don't want to um, integrate anymore or don't want to have anything to do with each other because of all those negative stereotypes.
1: In the book you
2: speak about working in the UNICEF
1: headquarters in New York and being faced with imagery related to Syria on every floor in photos maps fundraising campaigns how do you perceive the role of ngos in terms of public understanding about refugees and do you think it's damaging at all
2: i think ngos um, like in good intention uh while building building their fundraising campaigns they kind of focus on darkish pictures of refugees in camps and um, sad looks, uh, poor language skills, and this image like that's used to gain empathy, of course, and which is sometimes like it is a true image of some of the places or some of the refugee camps, but unfortunately it gets generalized to all refugees or to all migrants. And uh, that's how people who never met Syrian would always assume that this is how they look for, uh, like. And uh, one time, like I was walking in the streets and I met someone random, uh, they were asking me about one street in, in Ireland. and. They realized I, I wasn't from Ireland and they asked, where are you from? I said, Syria. And the lady suddenly said, like, are you cold? Do you, want, uh, do you want to take my jacket? Do you want gloves? And she assumed automatically that I was cold because of that campaign that was that about Syrians were freezing in, in camps and tents. So that image is kind of damaging and... Uh, but as I said, like I, I assume it's in good intentions to raise awareness of the harsh situations, but unfortunately it gets
1: generalized. You write about going to a Christmas dinner with a humanitarian organization in Ireland, where there was a luxurious hall or night tables, fancy food and people in suits and dresses. You write, I never understood the need to spend tons of money on conferences and assemblies and celebrities instead of giving the money directly to refugees and other causes. I struggled to watch the way people could distance themselves from the human suffering happening in real time and enjoy a fancy dinner. I could see the ghosts of the miserable faces who had died during the war or while crossing the sea floating in that fancy hall. Life clearly was not fair. I was reminded of that fact constantly during uh, my work. The humanitarian world was not my place. Um, And you talk there but also elsewhere about the disconnect you faced many times like when a colleague complained that their visa for somewhere took three days instead of one and it must have been frustrating when you see people with comfortable lives complaining when there are so many others in need how carefully did you think about how much of this to put into the book and were you worried that either the text could come across as too angry or not angry enough
2: or did you have other concerns around that um, I did have my concerns, but it was just an important message that I wanted to send out. I uh, I still like agree. I like I'll never understand the need to entertain the rich in order to for them to give donations to a good cause. And um, I like I at some point I gave an advanced book, uh, advanced copy of the book to someone at UNICEF, and they read it and they love it and they are very supportive of it. So um, I know that. Uh, NGOs support the the message that I was trying to convey in the book some might not agree with it maybe or the way I described my relationship with an NGO but I I still stand with that message
1: and did you read many other memoirs novels or any other kinds of works about migration while you were working on yours and do you have any recommendations
2: Yes, I, I read a lot. I think uh, before writing, I was just reading because I was looking for similar stories, as I said. Uh, and uh, to deal with the trauma, uh, the first step of healing is uh, for me was to read and uh, feel less alone in this experience. And reading other memoirs for Syrians and migrants was very helpful. I can recommend uh, some of, uh, like on, on, t- on the top of my head, there's uh, Hassan Akkad, Hope Not Fear. Uh, there is Ayham Ahmad, the pianist of your uh, There is the Battle for Home uh, for Marwal Sabuni. Um, there is also several uh, like different different than those books that they, those were written by Syrians. Uh, and uh, there is uh, uh, New to the Parish for uh, Sorsha Polak, uh, which is an amazing uh, collection of interviews with Syrians or migrants in in Ireland. Uh, there's also unorthodox for Deborah Feldman, actually, that helped me look at religion from a different perspective. And in fiction, there's Exit West for Mohsen Hamid, which I found um, a very really interesting to talk about war without talking about the details of war. So they're all good recommendations, I think.
1: Um, and I was wondering as well, are there any Syrian writers, authors or poets whose work you would recommend for people who want to know more about Syria or its culture?
2: Uh, there is an, uh, a book that I love, um, it's called Syria Speaks, and it's uh, kind of a, like an, um, a museum of art and culture inside a book, uh, and it's all about uh, the revolution days in Syria, and how artists uh, painted um, graffiti and uh, other, all kinds of art, and you'll find poems, essays, uh, all kinds of uh, art in the literature. Uh, during those uh, years of revolution. Um, and also, growing up, I was reading to um, my favorite female Syrian uh, writer. Uh, her name is Ghada El Samman. There's also a famous Syrian uh, writer, uh, Nizar Kabbani, and they're both from Damascus. You talk about Syrian friends changing
1: their names when they reach Europe. You actually joked that to be Irish one day you might change your name to Sally. How much do you think the need to integrate or fit into a new culture forces displaced people to forget or block out their past? And do you think that causes a knock-on effect that means there are stories that we never hear about migration or the experience of someone forced to escape their country?
2: I don't think we forget uh, our past and some people maybe hold on to it even more and some of them reject it reject uh, integration because they are afraid of losing that past but i think we just um, desperately uh, crave a simple life and that's why maybe we change our names to easier names because we want to avoid that question where are you from and uh, go into all those details and we just want a fresh start or a new beginning um i think People hold on to their past. It's not easy to forget that, even if they change their names or change the way they look or the way they dress, that they will always have that past inside them. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I guess different people grapple with it in different ways or or address it. Like I have one friend who, a Syrian friend actually, who does comedy now. He's like, I'll talk about the refugee experience, but only in in jokes. (laughs) That's a fun way to deal with it. I'd love to attend a comedy show about that topic. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, like what could be done better, either in terms of literature or news media,
2: or like what what do you want to see? Do you have any? I'd love to see more success stories uh, from Syrians. So the sto- the the media focuses usually on camps and boats and uh, tragedies. So that's part of the picture, but that's not the whole picture. So it'd be great to shed the light on other parts of that big picture show Syrians or migrants in other domains and definitely integration when we have those migrants in, in journalism, other sectors uh, in publication, for example, um, that would help tell the, the full picture.
1: Okay, well, thank you very much again. And I encourage everyone to read Suad al Dara's book, I don't want to talk about her.
2: Thank you, Sally, so much. It's been really an honor to be here today and to have this chat
1: so next i spoke to sean columb sean is a law lecturer at the university of liverpool and he wrote an excellent book called trading life organ trafficking illicit networks and exploitation which was published in 2020 It's won multiple awards, including recently the European Society of Criminology Best Book Award. It was based on seven years of investigation into organ trafficking, and though that's obviously the focus, this is a book with big ties to the situations that migrants, refugees and asylum seekers find themselves in, particularly in Egypt. Because they're barred from working, they can be forced to sell organs to survive, sometimes with the aim of making money to get to Europe. So the book is also a documentation of the extreme lengths that people go to, with the aim of migrating to a safe and secure country.
3: So the the main reason I went to, to Egypt was there was a lot of laws being introduced about organ trafficking. It was characterized as a trafficking offense and a severe form of exploitation. But I wanted to see what that actually meant in practice and what effect laws were actually having on the ground. But something I found out quite quickly when I was in Cairo is that the trade had kind of changed. So before, where impoverished Egyptians were being targeted for organ sale, now there was a shift towards asylum seekers and refugees. Now, the major reason asylum seekers and refugees were being targeted is because they had no protection, um, no legal protection. So because of their precarious status, they, they had no access to work. They they didn't have any real legal rights. they, they were... It was, it was easy to solicit or more, they, they were kind of available for organ sale, if that makes sense. So some people were very severely exploited, others because of their situation, made worse by the EU um, agenda on migration, uh, made worse by more border reinforcements, made worse by laws that are criminalizing mobility and movements. Because of that situation, because of that context, some people felt like they had no choice but to sell a kidney. And like I said before, this is part of the reason why brokers in particular were targeting asylum seekers and refugees for kidney sale, because they didn't have any legal recourse.
1: But my understanding is that you were like, you know, hanging out in coffee shops in Egypt, uh, maybe living with Sudanese people. Like, could you, what What was involved in you spending time with people who knew about this?
3: Yeah, well, everything, everything came from that. So. I I looked at all the laws, I looked at all the legislation, I I read as much information as possible that I could, that was available on the organ trade. But the one thing that was missing was the perspectives of people who were directly involved. When I went to Egypt, um, I wasn't sure what to expect. I reached out to a lot of different NGOs beforehand, I got a very muted response, or sometimes I was just referred to different newspaper articles that I had read a few times before, or different stories that had been reproduced in different um, media accounts. But one interpreter overheard me speaking about this issue, and she told me that if I really wanted to understand what was happening, that I needed to talk directly to the communities involved. And she told me about different street markets in Cairo where there was predominantly migrant populations. So Sudanese in particular, South Sudanese, Eritrean, Eritrean as well, and some Ethiopians. But um, they had just ended up living in Cairo for years with very, very limited support. I went to the street markets, I, I tried to speak to people involved, obviously I didn't walk around asking people to have sold a kidney, but um, like I, I was interested and I, I went to one particular place quite often, I had some coffee, I got talking to one person in particular, we built up a good rapport and I, I told him about my research and at first he was a bit, I guess a bit wary of me, a bit suspicious. But a lot of the people that I spoke to, they interviewed me before I interviewed them. They wanted to understand my my motivations for doing the work that I was doing and for doing the research. I explained that I was an academic and that laws had been introduced. I wasn't sure if they were making any difference. And basically, that I wanted to understand from their experiences how best to, to make recommendations to change policy or legal practice if possible. Or at the very least, just to draw attention to what was happening. So maybe after about two or three weeks um, of going to different street markets and drinking lots of coffee, smoking a lot of shisha, um, I was introduced to someone who sold a kidney and it sort of snowballed from there. In most cases, people were offered maybe between six and $10,000, but they weren't paid that. And in any case, that money still wasn't enough.
1: And you talk about the use and misuse of words, specifically the conflation of human smuggling with trafficking, which can be used to support a selective criminal justice agenda, which reproduces the conditions of exploitation it purports to prevent, um, which I guess kind of follows on from what you just said. And also the use of the word exploitation and the terms migrant, refugee, asylum seeker, undocumented, irregular, illegal. You talk about the arbitrary nature of these terms, which can all exist concurrently um, in some cases. So maybe you could talk a bit more about how you decided which terms and which language to use and and whether you had reservations about that.
3: Yeah, so like trafficking has very kind of harrowing connotations, but... The, the problem with the trafficking label and exploitation, when it's understood in only purely extreme terms, is that it can be used to justify draconian measures that actually make conditions worse, that actually create a market for smuggling to begin with. So the more borders there are, the more need there is for smuggling. You know, like one person I spoke to, he was a young air train man. He was working in Cairo for maybe three or four months. But he told me he felt like a slave working 12-hour days, getting paid next to nothing. And then he was approached by someone who said, look, listen, you can sell your kidney. If you sell this, this is going to improve your situation. And maybe you can make it overseas.
1: Unlike the other authors I'm speaking to, you published your book with an academic publisher. uh, I think it was Stanford University Press. And I believe you had to go through an academic review. Uh, How did that affect your writing or did it? And how did it um, affect the way that you could detail what you found?:
3: Yeah, it did affect how I wrote the book because I guess the book is essentially an academic text, so it's, it deals with legislation and, and theory. but beyond that, for me, it was always very important to foreground the experience of the people I spoke to. So I tried to make it as narrative based as possible, but then use that narrative to try try basically to unpack those experiences and and to develop the analysis from directly from the interviews my starting point was very much to talk to people who are involved and then to look at how the law responds to their situation or how it could possibly make things worse and then to use those experiences to try and make recommendations and how things could possibly change.
1: Do you have any thoughts on how the news portrays refugees or migrants? I mean that it must sometimes contrast quite a lot with with your reporting and your experiences and your time spent with people to see um, News coverage and how it speaks about these, you know, situations where people are migrating or attempting to migrate in quite difficult circumstances.
3: Yeah, well, depending on the news source, it can it can vary very largely. So, um, but in general, I, I think sometimes the association with criminality can be un- unhelpful. I, I guess that, that again, that's one thing I wanted to do with the book. I'm not sure if I achieved that, but I I want people to engage with people as people, just to understand what their situation is and what they're trying to to, to get through. Um, and I think most people will be able to relate to that if you're in a situation where you're trying to escape conflict or you're trying to support your family. Um, you, you would consider using alternative means to enter a, another country, particularly when there's no legal pathways available. So if there is no legal pathways available, what what can you do? Um, what What the media could do better is maybe engage a bit more with the kind of um, ordinary experiences of, of, of people who end up in situations that might be considered newsworthy.
1: Uh, last question for me anyway, were there other writers or influences you turned to when you were trying to think about the right way to do these, this research or to tell these stories?
3: For me, when I, when I was writing the book, it's, it's written in an academic style, but I I, I read of a lot of um, journalistic accounts, including yours and, and other prominent journalists who were writing on this issue. Um and I, I looked at their writing style, basically, and I tried to adapt that into how I did my analysis and how I presented the, the different stories and, and, and narratives of the people that I spoke to um, to make it as engaging as possible. To be honest, I, just, I, I can't really name like one, one researcher who really changed how I, I thought. It's like For me, it all it all came from the fieldwork work. Like I said, I, I, everything that I did was very much grounded in the perspectives of the people that I spoke to. And for the book, the way I wanted to tell their story was very much through their experience.
1: I recommend that everybody reads Sean's book. Again, it's called Trading Life, Organ Trafficking, Illicit Networks and Exploitation. Thanks so much for talking to me, Sean.
3: Uh, Thanks, Sally. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this.
1: My next conversation is with Gowali Paserlai, an Afghan writer and refugee advocate whose debut book, a memoir, was called The Lightless Sky, an Afghan refugee boy's journey of escape to a new life in Britain. It came out in 2015, the year of the so-called European migrant crisis, when 1.3 million people claimed asylum in the EU after fleeing the war in Syria and a range of other situations. I spoke to him about what that was like. You're joining me from the UK, right?
4: Yes, Sally, yes.
1: Um, maybe you could talk just initially about what it was like, you know, releasing the book and that following year, how that was for you.
4: Sure. So The lightless Sky was published in October 2015. Um, it was an interesting time. I was doing my final year at University of Manchester, Um my politics and social science degree, and the opportunity came about to write my story. Uh, And so we did it. I worked with the help of Nadine Ghuri, a really wonderful journalist and person, now a friend, a family basically, now we were very, very close, and she helped me put my words on paper. So it was emotional and mentally challenging recalling my story, but actually it was also very distressing to then watch the news, and then it become a very timely thing. Uh, My story was, you know, 10 years old by, by then,
1: um, yeah, and I, I guess it must have felt slightly like you then were a go-to person or you know, becoming kind of a spokesperson for all people in this situation when, of course, you can't you know, speak for everybody, you can't embody everybody's experiences.
4: Sure, and that's what I've been trying to explain. So it was good that I was able to speak on behalf of refugees and trying to use my story and experiences in a, in a positive light to humanize the discussion and debate because there was a lot of dehumanizing language being used a bunch of migrants, illegals, people invading us, And, of course, with Brexit, even, you know, a year later, uh, all the debate was around not, you know, for us stood in front of that Breaking Point posters. They were not Romanians in the poster. They were not, you know, Eastern Europeans. They were specifically refugees, Afghans, Syrians, and others. So the idea that Britain was leaving the EU, it wasn't so much to do with, you know, European migrants. It was to do with refugees and the fear of these people coming to the UK. So I felt, yes, of course, and I was trying to explain that, you know, my story is just one of a kind. There are millions of other stories refugees are individuals, we can't brush them with the same brush. There's a lot of stereotypes about refugees and uh, this idea of what people say, oh, how come are these, these guys refugees in asylum seekers when they have phones? And, and funny, funny enough, I just came back from Moldova, visiting a, a, a shop that we have, a, a charity that I'm involved with, Refugee Supports Europe, and I saw these Ukrainian people coming to collect food and it's done in a very, we give aid with dignity you know, in a really nice and humanized way. And they had cars, they were wearing nice clothes and they had phones. And so they were, you know, and then this idea of refugees that some people have, it's completely, you know, uh, out of the window. So it's like, how could you, a refugee, you have a car, you have a phone uh, and you are in that situation. So, uh, you know, refugees are a, a very diverse group of people with different needs and different um, experiences and struggles, I guess.
1: As you said, you had been in the UK almost a decade at the point when your book came out. Did you feel like you noticed kind of the general public's um, discussion, you know, the way that they spoke about refugees or the way that the news spoke about refugees. Did that shift at all? Or um, how was it over that period of time?
4: So for the 10 years I was in the UK, for five years I was actually in a legal limbo with the Home Office and the government. So I didn't really have time to think about what the people were saying. But then when I started, you know, becoming an activist and campaigner and a humanitarian, I saw the narratives and, I, you know, whenever I used to get invited on media, um, I remember even the media used to struggle to just, you know, I was a student. They wouldn't even say I was a student. They would just call me a migrant or a refugee from Afghanistan or whatever. They wanted to label me in certain ways. And I felt very uncomfortable because I said, okay, that's just my legal status. I'm an activist. I'm a student. And then I became an author. And the media in the UK was very uncomfortable with actually, you know, writing uh, my title as an author. Um, and so yes, I saw the discourse in the changes of language. I think with the, at the peak of the refugee crisis with the Syrian situation, there was some, you know, positives in terms of like the UK decided to take twenty thousand uh, Syrian refugees, which was a very small number. You know, there were like four or five million uh, refugees in neighboring countries. But nevertheless, it was a positive development. We had a, a march in London, a protest. Uh, about uh, you know, hundred thousand people came out on the street to say that we needed to do more.
1: And I mean, as a, as a writer and obviously as someone who speaks a lot, um, you must have to think quite carefully about the language that you use. And we see um, in terms of migration and, and refugee issues, you know, so many words have become politicized and phrases as well. Like, is that something that you think about a lot? Do you, do you question yourself and even the way that you use certain terms or certain words?
4: Sure, that's a really interesting point. Again, I do, I'm more of a speaker than rather, rather than a writer. And sometimes I do find myself, you know, using words that I feel uncomfortable with. You know, even the idea of calling someone refugee or migrant, there's a distinction. A migrant could be anyone who comes here for work, for studies, for tourism. There's nothing wrong being a migrant, but it has become loaded term. Refugees have specific rights, and you know, uh, and states have an obligation and duty to uh, to fulfil it. I go to events and meetings and stuff. People say, "Oh, these are our refugee people. These are our, uh, these are my refugee people. Or these are our refugee employees." And I feel really uncomfortable. Like I'm saying, look, these are individuals. You've got to say, "These are, you know, this is Gulwali, This is Ahmed. This is Mahmoud, or whatever." Uh, Or you could say, perhaps these are our Syrian friends, or these are our new Afghan neighbors. Using this terminology of even people who are actually refugees, this is just their legal status. This doesn't define them. Uh, And I find it hard when I see people being labeled in certain ways. Uh, Oh, these are undocumented or these are asylum seekers. These uh, labels are used for a specific purpose, which is their legal definition, and I feel like the public should just be more cautious. One thing
1: that has repeatedly occurred to me while reporting on migration is that in literature and in films there are epic stories of migration which show things like heroism, the love that propels people, But news coverage and the general public in Europe's understanding of these journeys as they happen today doesn't seem to be from that perspective. Um, I think it's pretty clear that you did one of these epic journeys. You traveled through 10 countries. Uh, There was, you know, incredible bravery on display. You were imprisoned. You arrived in the UK when you were just 13 how do you convey the gravity and enormity of that sort of journey through words? That must have been a challenge.
4: It has, certainly. It was a challenge because for me it was a, a normal thing I did because most of my Afghan friends and people, they asked me, oh, you have written a book about your journey. What, we, we all did it. So for us, it was a, a very normal, basic thing that we did. But in fact, when it, in actual fact, it wasn't a normal thing. So it was hard because, you know, it was a year long journey. I was just 12 and I was writing it 10 years later and to trying to go back to these memories where I wanted to move on from. And I didn't really see the significant of it, uh, you know, uh, the, in the previous years, because I thought it was, it, this is what just happens to refugees. This is part of our journey and experiences and struggles. Actually, you know, we could have wrote a lot more about, you know, different countries and cities. I remember a lot more than what is already in the book. The challenge was, because I wasn't uh, 12 and 13 years old anymore, I was trying to write it as a, as a, as a child. And, and how I was feeling and thinking at the time. So yes, it was not easy, it was a challenging process. I
1: actually remember uh, a Syrian friend and journalist, Ziad Gandor, who I met in Calais, saying he hadn't understood Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness until he did the journey from Syria um, to Turkey, across the Mediterranean and through Europe. Uh, when you, were, when you mm-hmm. were making that journey, do you, do you remember ever, like, thinking about how you would explain it to someone later on? I mean, of course, you weren't making notes for a book in your head, you know, at, the age, at that age. But, but were you thinking about that?
4: Sure. Well, not really. So what we think about is, for example, whenever we used to be with other refugees and people and friends, we used to tell stories of our experiences of being deported, being in prison. So we always used to share stories and experiences. And it was, a, it was a, an interesting pastime thing we did. Because we'll be like in basements, we will be in a really unpleasant places like a chicken coop or place where you keep animals. So we <laughs> we told stories, some some of good time stories, some of these adventure stories uh, from our experiences. And, you know, we tried to find out what other people's experience of crossing borders was similar to ours. It was just, it was nothing more than just a kind of a pastime and interesting to hear what was happening in people. If people have, were deported from other countries and places just to find out, we're just curious to see, you know, how things were, could we make it there? You know, what happens if we get arrested? How to how to await police. It was more of a practical step as well as, you know, a, a story telling times for us.
1: Yeah. And your own story is about love as well. You talk about your love for your family and also your brother, who, like you said, you were reunited with quite coincidentally but amazingly in London. And your mother um, sent you away because she wanted to save you. You know, that's also an act of love. Uh, do you think that these stories of love, of family ties are stripped out of the general public's um, understanding of migration or even the media's narratives around migration?
4: Yeah, most certainly. I mean, my mother saved us, but she also lost us. And this idea of love and sacrifices and, uh, and friendship in and these positive stories, the media are not interested in this. They, they don't want to humanise. Because then once they humanise refugees and asylum seekers or migrants, then the public would be more sympathetic.
1: And you, and you write in the book um, how you were regarded as like incredibly suspicious once you reached the UK. You were accused of lying about your age, about where you came from. How do you think this kind of hostile suspicion affects how survivors of these types of journeys speak about what they've been through, or, or maybe how they decide not to because they know that accusations can be made against them?
4: Yes, completely. So, you know, most most refugees, most of my friends, they don't want to speak about uh, about their experiences. They don't want people to know they were asylum seekers or refugees because they just want to live their life. Yeah, it's just a really strange process that you go through where you're being dehumanized, you're being treated as a, as a criminal. Your credibility is questioned. You know, imagine they don't believe your nationality. They don't believe your date of birth. They don't, like, what else do they believe? It's just very unpleasant. And uh, I'm not surprised, especially now with this, new anti-refugee legislation in Britain, sending people to Rwanda, and treating you know, creating a two-tier system. They want the public to, to know that they're doing something about this so called uncontrolled migration, illegal migration. There's so much narrative has been created which is untrue, which is yeah, the incompetence of government and, and, and the lies they've been told about these people. So yeah, it's it's very upsetting.
1: From my perspective, probably, you know uh you know, it's very privileged that I can be so ignorant, but I'm only starting to realize when you're living with this kind of constant fear that your legal situation can change your legal status or that any information that you give out could be twisted and used against you. Of course, that makes you unwilling to to speak about what you've been through or what you've seen. But I'm sure that that has a big knock on effect, both um in terms of how the media coverage is, but then also in terms of, you know broader things like um like the books the books that are available the movies that are available the stories generally that are told about um you know migrants refugees do you think we need more people with lived experience of these types of journeys writing or speaking out um and what is needed for that to happen
4: most certainly i think you know i i encourage people to write and share their stories and experiences I'm more interested about people's aspirations and dreams and hopes rather than that because you know people want to like this idea of oh, refugee story. People think oh it's about victimhood, it's about sad stories, it's <clears throat> it's about struggles and hardships. You know it's not not all stories. Of course there's elements of that, but there's more stories. People write to me you know from the lightless sky they take out uh, things around hope, around friendships, around the love and sacrifices and families and so on. So there is more to our story just than the, the suffering. I think, you know, we can encourage people uh, to share their stories if they feel comfortable in doing so. And that would only happen if the government, if the authorities actually believes in people and give them the sense of, you know, confidence and self-esteem and not constantly put their credibility under question. But also, I feel like we, shouldn't, we should live in a world where there isn't a need for such a stories, you know. I think we should be accepting and be tolerant towards refugees and migrants and asylum seekers. And if people want to share their experiences, great, if they don't want to share it, we should also respect that. But I feel like the narrative needs to change and people should tell their stories the way they want to tell it. And that's, you know, whenever I meet asylum seekers and refugees and young people, I tell them, tell your stories the way you feel comfortable telling it, not what people want to hear.
1: Yeah. Do you have any Afghan writers, poets, journalists or others that you would recommend to write about migration or even non-Afghans?
4: Sure. So um, since the publication of The Lightless Guy, it's been great to see my friend, Dr. Wahil Aryan, who is a doctor in the NHS, he's written his book, uh, I think it's called In Wars. He's based in Chester and he's a, a, a great um, supporter. He helps uh, doctors in war zones and conflict. He has a charity, some great work. In his book it came about, he's a really good spokesperson for like refugees and, and, and stuff and Afghans. Also, uh, Hamid Amiri, uh, a Welsh Afghan, he's written his book, The Boy With Two Hearts. Uh, and their journey and experiences, it's been turned into a play. I went to Cardiff to watch it, amazing story and experiences that he has shared. You know, our Syrian friend, Hassan Akkad, has written a book, uh, Hope Not Hate. It's nice to see actually that writers or people just sharing their stories and being able to have a um, a platform and a possibility to get published because it's not easy to get published and find, you know, it's hard to find the, the industry and find a publicist and a writer. And, and so on and an agent. So it's a long and complicated process, as you know. But I, I have seen a lot of positive development in the last five years. I have new authors, new people coming uh, as, as, as kind of spoke people, as campaigners and activists. I mean, there aren't many books written by refugees. I mean, you know, usually people will just write about us. Like, for example, you have written about refugee experiences and stories and talk to people. That's great. And you are able, you know, you had the, the means to do it and you had the opportunity to, to do this. Uh, academics people write about us and other authors and journalists and so on but it's nice to actually have um, you know, refugees themselves sharing and being authors of their own journeys and experiences
1: yeah definitely um, well thank you so much uh, for coming on, I really appreciate it and sorry just to repeat the name of your book for um, people listening it is called The Lightless Sky An Afghan Refugee Boy's Journey of Escape to a New Life in Britain Now I'll speak to Hilan Habila, a Nigerian novelist and non-fiction writer who has won many awards, including the Kane Prize and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. He joined me from Virginia, where he teaches creative writing at George Mason University. I also asked Hilan about the publishing industry and whether he thinks it is limiting the types of stories we hear about migration. I came across your work through the book Travelers, which I know was your fourth novel. And it's kind of interconnected vignettes largely about Africans in Europe, which are woven together through one nameless academic, um, who I think is Nigerian and he's based in Berlin. And it was published in 2019. Um, And yeah, I love this book so much. Uh, Congratulations on doing it. Thank you. I guess my first question, I mean, the title itself, I think, might be considered by some people as a statement. I read that you used the word travellers in an attempt to avoid the use of the word migrant, which has become kind of a a bad or politicised word in the media. And you've said we are all travellers, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that.
5: Oh, yeah. Um, You're right. I I didn't want to kind of... um Narrow my focus by calling it, you know, migrants or immigrants or something like that. And you're right, you know, there's so much kind of pejorative um, meaning attached to the word migrants. It's become so politicized. Behind the word itself, travelers, I wanted to ask the question you know, who travels? Why do they travel? How do they travel? Why do some people, you know, travel so easily, so freely? Literally, you know, they roll out the red carpet for them when they travel. And whereas others travel means risking their lives and that of their families. So it's the politics behind that that interests me and the human story behind that that interests me and the history behind that that I kind of wanted to interrogate in in the book.
1: Yeah, and I I mean, I guess um, your book, not to give anything away, but the kind of one of the messages of it seemed to be that this could be any of us as well. And I think the Ukraine invasion, um, certainly here in Ireland, has made a lot more Irish people realise that having to do this type of forced migration is something that actually could kind of come out of nowhere and could happen to you at any point in your life.
5: Yeah, very good example. And also, I think for the first time, people are seeing that, you know, that could happen to anyone. It's not about poverty. It's not about um, this this word they always use about economic migrants and all of that. But you know, it doesn't have to be about the economy. It could just be that you could have millions in your bank and you wake up tomorrow and you have to leave your country or your home um, for some reasons. And we see that, like you said, in, in Ukraine. Now people, because this is so close to home, it's beginning to change the way they look at migration and, and and migrant crisis, and people who travel, I think it makes them understand. They open their homes, you know, and the politics is kind of put aside for the moment, and we see people as human beings. Yeah.
1: And, and why did you make it as into fiction? I mean, do you think that there can be more power in fiction than in non-fiction? Um, I know you've also written a bit of non-fiction.
5: Yeah. Fiction has always been full of, you know, stories of Migration. You know, you could say that the quintessential story is always about leaving home, setting out. A stranger comes to town, a stranger leaves town. You know, I think Nabokov said that all stories have to do with that. And when you go back to the foundational texts of Western literature, or even then Western literature, it's about, you know, conquest, people being forced out of their homes, um, the odyssey, people traveling to go and wage war. And make other people homeless, you know, and that's that's basically the story of um, literature. So the the tropes are there. So it's easy for me to kind of build upon it and and kind of expand it and particularize it um, to to the African um, you know reality in the, of the 20th century or 21st century, and look at it and ask myself how does it look, what does it mean, you know, to to to, to be an African with our history of colonialism, um, our relationship to the West, and how all of this kind of came about. What is it? So I wanted to kind of contextualize it. And I thought fiction, you know, would be a way of doing it in a kind of metaphoric, but also kind of realistic way.
1: And kind of on that point, I mean, do you have any thoughts on the news media on the way that the, you know, so-called migration crisis has been covered? And do you think, there, there could be more borrowed, I'm not saying borrowed from fiction in the sense of fictionalizing things, but do you think that there's something that's gone wrong that there seems to be so much dehumanization now of of people?
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to generalize, um, but you can divide it into two. There are those who are kind of sympathetic to, to migrants and then you have the direct opposite of that, the the rhetoric, people like Trump, you know, calling migrants rapists, you know, and criminals. The dominant one has always been playing to people's fears, you know, and doubts about others, about the other who isn't like them, um, who doesn't speak their language, um, who is here to take their jobs, who is almost like an invader who is coming, these hordes that are coming to invade Europe. I think what fiction does more than any other form of writing is to make us see is to empathize to place ourselves in the shoes in the in the in the minds of of others who are not like us i mean what is fiction if not stepping into the shoes of someone who isn't like you i mean i can read the works of dickens of homer nothing to do with me i'm from africa i didn't know what snow looks like you know but you you understood when you read it because you you empathize because the writer has taken the trouble to kind of take you step by step into the minds and lives of of these characters and so that that's really what I thought yeah. you know I, I wanted to do yeah
1: I think a lot of journalists have been asking themselves have we played a role in in kind of the current narrative that is that can be anyway very dehumanizing or unsympathetic and you do feel like you write a new story and you say you know 200 people drowned and that obviously doesn't capture who was in that boat like their hopes their fears yeah. their families their you know their heroism their their ties whatever
5: yeah yeah exactly i like the way the, the 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 use of the word heroism um and i, I always say that you know if these characters in my book if they were white people from the west they will make movies about them. They will be heroes. They will celebrate them, you know? But because they are not, they are from this part of the world, they are basically seen as a threat, you know? So that's that's also a kind of relative way of looking at, at things. How do we cover these stories? How can we be more sympathetic to others who are not like us?
1: Do you think that racism plays into the way that migration is spoken about or written about and understood in the US or Europe?
5: Racism plays a very, very big part of it and you have to again i keep coming back to trump because it's such a perfect example it's such a low-hanging fruit but it's so true that you know he himself said it you know these are criminals and rapists um because they are they are other they are the other you know they are not white they are not american so they and then he calls all the africans um countries as you know what you call shithole countries, you know, excuse my language, but that's that's he's taking, of course, his lead from others who have done it before. It's not just he's not inventing this thing, it's been it's in the existence. You have to look at Hungary, you have to look at these countries who build walls around their borders and prosecute all these migrants. One of the reasons is because they are just not like them, you know, they have a different history. Exile is such a disorienting state, people who haven't traveled, who haven't lived outside their homes don't understand this, but you're trying to reinvent yourself. Everything you know or everything you knew has disappeared. You have to start learning almost as if you are a child. Um, You have to reinvent yourself. There's this beautiful book, um, Lost in Translation by Eva Hoffman, beautiful book. It's a nonfiction book about this um, Polish Jewish family who migrated to to Canada um, because of course of pogroms and, and persecutions. And she has to learn English all over again. Well, not all over again, for the first time because she never spoke English. And she would be sitting with friends and she will listen to them and she can't tell a joke. And they look at her as an idiot, you know? And she would tell herself, I'm such a smart person. I'm, I'm considered funny, you know, <laughs> back in Poland. But now they, I can't even tell a joke. And the worst is the parents who are also smart, and they, but they can't even speak the language. They have to depend on their own children who are quicker to learn the language. They become such helpless figures, you know. So that's, that's this orienting aspect of 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 travel and of migration and of exile.
1: A lot of the discussion about around stories told about migration is about movement, but a lot of the reality it seems to me like is staying still, you know, waiting for things or we're trying to come to terms with things.
5: Exactly. It's about waiting, waiting, doing nothing. I've met these people waiting for their application for for asylum. You know, they are told that it's going to take maybe a few months and they've waited for like five years, 10 years. They haven't heard anything. I mean, while they have to survive because they cannot legally work and what happens to, to their children, what happens to their wives, you know? And so this character in my book, his wife stayed back in Turkey. He came with the boys, two of them, and the wife stayed back with the girls. He promised that he's going to get papers for them and they will come. Now, it's been 10 years. He doesn't know his daughter. The daughter has already got married in Turkey. He couldn't attend her, her wedding. Hasn't seen his wife. So that's the kind of waiting that you do. It's like your life has totally it's been upended. It's just such a powerless, powerless feeling to to be a migrant, to be um, an asylum seeker. But there's nothing you can do about it
1: uh do you have any literary or other influences when it comes to how you perceive or think about migration or even um are there any you know writers uh poets authors journalists that you'd recommend that people read
5: oh there are It's a bunch of them i don't know if i can remember all of them at the moment um of course you have to read homer or <laughs> the odyssey um it's about, you know, living home and trying to trying to kind of um, make a life outside of your home. There's a beautiful essay called Reflections on Exile by Edward Said. I advise everyone to read that essay. You really will understand what, what exile means, what travel means. And he says that sometimes we underestimate how much longing or how much desire we all have for home and to separate one from home is almost like killing one. One I just um, reviewed is How Beautiful We Were by Imbolo Mbue. It's a good book.
1: Are you still working on anything related to migration or maybe you want to say what you're working on now?
5: (laughs) Yeah, actually, um, someone once asked me, you know, what would travellers look like if it was set in America, you know? And that's what I'm working on now, (laughs) in a way. It's, I I think, in a way, I'll always be working on what it means to be living outside your home country, because that's my reality. What does it mean to be an African outside of Africa? What does it mean to be a black person, you know, away from Africa? So that, whether I like it or not, is going to touch on you know migration is going to touch on exa it's going to touch on the idea of what it means what home means um so these are themes that really interest me
1: okay well thank you so much for everything and um yeah it was great to talk to you
5: thank you very much
1: lastly i spoke to jane grogan a professor in ucd school of english drama and film i wanted to ask her about how migration has appeared historically in literature and how it has been addressed in different ways through different genres we got in touch first because i was thinking about the idea for this podcast um, and migration how it has been shown through literature historically and through the epics This week I coincidentally got an email from a teacher who works at a school in Brussels and he said he has been using Virgil's Aeneid to teach his third-year Latin group about aspects of what refugees go through trying to seek safety. The Aeneid was written by Virgil between 29 and 19 BC and it's really a reminder that people have always been migrating throughout history. Jane, maybe you could just talk a bit more about migration as we've seen it in epics.
6: In epic, yeah, sure. Um, epic has always been interested in travel, uh, travelers, in migration, in people who've had to move from one place to another, and um, because of force of circumstance, because of war, um, because of uh, um, criminality, because of um, all kinds of different different pressures um, in their home place. Um, and epic tends to be a form that focalizes, um, that brings into view the actions, the tribulations, the travels, the journey, the sufferings of people when they are pushed out of their home place uh, and have to take a journey. Um, and the Aeneid is a really good example of that, actually. And
1: the romance genre, which is a long narrative genre, goes back to classical times around 5th century BC. Uh, maybe you could talk about a little bit about migration in relation to that. I know it also plays a role.
6: Yeah, so romance is, if you like, the other long narrative genre And it, again, like epic, tends to uh, bring a particular hero into view, sometimes multiple heroes in romance, actually, um, and it sets them off on a journey. In romance, sometimes the nature of the victory, if you like, the nature of the quest, Um, is much less clear. People wander for a long time and they don't necessarily understand what it is that they're wandering for. The Odyssey itself, in fact, in some ways, is more a romance than an epic and Odysseus's key qualities in it are his wiliness, his ingenuity, his cleverness, his ability to improvise um, in particularly challenging situations. Whereas the job of somebody like Aeneas um, is much more straightforward. It's to honour uh, is to honor his duties, his duties to family, uh, to his country, to the Trojans, to his father, and to his descendants. His job is to leave Troy um, to get through this episode of wandering, to turn his back on the wanderings um, and to then move forward to Italy and settle and found the um, the, the dynasty, I suppose that will that will eventually lead to the establishment of Rome. He goes from from Troy, he ends up mostly, they almost reach Italy and then they get blown by the winds uh, in, in a big storm. There's great images of storms in the Aeneid and they get blown to the coast of North Africa where he lands in Carthage Um, and Carthage interestingly is a city that has recently been founded as as the Aeneid has it by Dido a Phoenician queen uh, who's been betrayed by her brother back in back in uh, Tyre uh, of the coast of Lebanon and so she has actually sort of her her brother had murdered her husband and so she had to flee and they established she establishes a new city um, uh, the city of Carthage Um, And Aeneas lands in Carthage and has a couple of very affecting encounters, actually, with Dido. He falls in love with her, uh, and this is one of the things that he ends up having to turn his back on her in order to to establish Rome. Um, But but when he lands, he comes across a temple in which he finds depictions of his own history, of the fall of Troy, um, and he gets to retell his story. And she welcomes uh, him and his men in, and she says, Come in, gentlemen, under my roof. I, too, have had misfortunes of this kind and know what it is to be driven by events till fate has now brought me to rest here. So she is herself a displaced um, uh, person who has had to begin anew and found this new city. And she in fact offers them A place there she offers them a community and a space to to build their line there but Virgil has to move Aeneas onwards to Italy in order to complete this move towards glorifying the establishment of the Roman Empire uh, this this destiny um, that he has because Virgil is trying to connect with the Greek myths but also provide Rome with its own glorious epic history as well
1: yeah, you know, it's kind of strange for me
6: to hear because my reporting
1: has focused on people trying to get from North Africa to Italy, yeah. um, obviously, what, 2000 years later or more, and how difficult it is. Um, do you think that these stories, like, or these epics even, uh, that they offer any insight into how the general public at that time felt about migration?
6: That's a really good question. Um, I suppose epics have been read at different times in different ways. They're often this one, for example, the Aeneid, is a Latin epic. It's been translated at multiple times. One thing that's been kind of interesting, actually, about translations of the Aeneid is that it often gets translated by um, people or poets who are marginalised in some way. So it becomes a way uh, for people who feel like they don't have a voice to kind of reinscribe themselves, to 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 take on these important um, uh, stories. Themselves um, in terms of how they regard. I think. I think you're right. I think that epics have always been a good place to assess um, people's sense of themselves as as mobile agents or as agents who could lose anything in an instant. Uh, one thing epic makes very clear is that. Um, is that things are things are unstable. The world we live in is unstable. Great uh, misfortune can strike you very suddenly, and it's how you engage with that um, and the kinds of stories that come out of that. And sometimes, very often, in these classical epics, it's not the fault of the humans what happens to them, it's the fault of the gods. So there's an interesting sort of um, way in which you think readers maybe are being asked to consider um, what it is to be... Uh, um, at the whim of fortune at the whim of circumstance at the whim of of wars and and, and what they narrate are always wars and um, uh, um colonization and the sort of Um, appropriation of other people's lands.
1: I mean, it's interesting even that you say that because some of my reporting interviewing people who are kind of trapped in um, this cycle today, they all say the same. They'll say, you know, everything was left up to God. I I realized that I I had almost lost my agency and I was at the whims of others who couldn't be relied on and basically just had to entrust my fate to God. So just to move on to a, a few questions about genre, uh if that's okay um you teach students about literary genre and the art of writing so you teach uh, Shakespearean comedy Greek tragedy American short stories poetry I feel like migration and related issues play a role probably in all of these
6: um yeah they they do and in very different kinds of ways if you wanted to tell um uh a very a short but hard-hitting story about migration um, that that, that uh, takes a kind of a deep dive into a situation or an image or a moment and cracks open um, all the challenges of that moment and then leaves the reader in this quite intense transformed place. There's a very powerful impact that the short story might have in those ways. Um, Greek tragedy uh, sets us up for a fall. We know this hero is not going to, things are not going to end well for the hero.
1: And I saw an interview on YouTube with you where you said that different types of genres can have different types of politics embedded in them. And I found that comment really interesting. And right now there's like a lot of politicization of migration and there's a lot of kind of dehumanization of migrants and refugees, you know, particularly ones coming from africa or the middle east seeking sanctuary um and i don't know if you think like there's any specific genre that is more sympathetic or that can can create more empathy towards people Um, because it seems to me working as a journalist like the news media it generally doesn't obviously there are exceptions but you know the way that we have to write about migration for example like when there's a shipwreck I write you know 200 people died in a shipwreck I don't have time to go into all their stories and to explain who they were and their hopes and dreams and you know I think more of us are questioning whether we've contributed to the dehumanization of people just simply because of the genre that we're using I guess to to do our work so
6: I don't know sorry if that's a clear question but I was wondering if you've thoughts on it um yes so okay I think one thing that we, we can and should be doing um, is being critical of our own literary tradition and the ways in which we've written about um, people from Africa, people from Asia. Um, that doesn't mean that it's always been entirely critical or, or disparaging or dehumanizing. It hasn't. In fact, there's long periods and there's definitely genres like romance in which, um, uh, in which a much richer history of engagement uh, uh, is, is visible. It has its racist moments. It is problematic, but I think more importantly than that is is to is to actually find ways of engaging with, uh, Middle Eastern and African culture and familiarizing ourselves uh, with with those genres, reading more um, more authors who are not European authors um, and trying to decenter Europe from this sense of. Uh, who we are, um, who we read about and so on. And I think also, sorry, my final point is that Europe has always been constructed by migrants, by people who move, um, has always been shaped in relation to all the countries around it um, and particularly the countries of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, It's always been formed in engagement with other cultures and we're lying to ourselves if we think that we have created this thing called Europe and various kinds of Uh, national or white experience from within that has never been the case Um, and I think being open to and and thinking about in the way that your work does thinking about um, how migration has always been part of the story of who we are and how we became who we are um, uh, is, is, is really crucial.
1: Thank you so much Jane that was really interesting. Thank you Sally. So what have I learned from these conversations? I've learned that other writers grapple with the same questions that I grapple with. I've learned that we need to reflect on where the stories we read come from. and that many are probably going untold because of issues around who is getting the chance to be published. There is certainly not one refugee or migrant experience. It seems clear that there is a need to open up more opportunities for more people with direct experience of different types of migration to rise even if they don't tell the stories we might expect them to tell. Why we should seek them out alongside news reports. And I've been reminded that all of us writing on issues related to this need to stay self-reflective as to our own work, even if we write in different genres and have very different goals. Perhaps most notably, I've been reminded that humans have always migrated, for a myriad of different reasons, and that they probably always will.
0: You've been listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Sally Hayden and produced by Ian Dunphy and Benedict Schlepper-Connolly. It was edited and mixed by Ian Dunphy. The music was composed by Benedict Schlepper-Connolly and performed by the composer with Nathan Sherman. Do check out Sally Hayden's book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, which is available from the Molly Shop. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council on Corla Allian. If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider buying MOLLY membership for yourself or a friend. It's the best way to support the museum and our programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. For more from Radio MOLLY, visit radio.molly.ie.